So Hebrews 11 uh, is a very uh, famous piece of scripture. Uh, it's sometimes known as the Hall of Fame of Faith because the author in this chapter basically gives a list of lots of Old Testament saints and he speaks about the virtues and the qualities of their faith. And right from the outset of this message, we have to understand why is the author bringing this list here in in chapter 11. And the answer to that question is really found in the context of this letter. If you remember, uh, the author of this letter wrote this to Hebrew Christians, and these Hebrew Christians were being tempted to go back to the Old Testament law. They were being tempted to put themselves underneath the law again, to put themselves into bondage to it. And the author is wanting, in bringing this list, to basically sort of grab their attention and say, hey, you guys, listen to this. Look at these people that you esteem so highly in the Old Testament. What was it about them that God remembers and that God values? It wasn't their self-righteousness to the law. It was their faith, their faith in him. And the author's wanting to say, look, you guys are being tempted to go back to the law, to put yourself under the law again. Don't do it, because God doesn't value that. It says in the scriptures in Isaiah, if I remember, that our self-righteousness is like filthy rags to God. What God values is, listen, faith. And in saying that, he's wanting to kind of say, don't go back to what you're being tempted to go back to. And so, last week, John was talking about the faith of Abel, the faith of Enoch, uh, the faith of uh, Noah. And this week, we're going to be talking about the faith of the patriarchal family, the family of Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, and we're going to speak briefly about Joseph. Now, one of the mistakes that we can make when we read about these people in the Old Testament is we can think, wow, these guys must have been absolutely amazing for God to work in their life the way that he did. And we forget the fact, listen, that they were sinners, that they fell short of the glory of God every single day of their life lives. One of the things that blessed me when John was um, speaking through Genesis, when he talked about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is he showed how they deceived people, how they lied, how they made massive mistakes. But listen, they were godly men of faith. And that's important because when you guys read a chapter like Hebrews 11, The devil might tempt you to think, oh, I could never have the faith of Noah. I could never have the faith of Abraham. But listen, you need to know that you can. Because you are in your nature just like Abraham and just like Noah. You are a sinner saved by grace. Just like these men and women. Don't let the devil lie to you about that. Don't let him deceive you and think that you can't pursue the kind of faith that these men and women had. 
But when we speak about this patriarchal family, there is something very unique about them. They are the first family, I would say, in uh, the Scriptures that received direct revelation from God about the future, about their family, about their descendants, about really, in, in more of a clear way, about the Messiah. And so when we look at this section, what we're going to see is we're going to see what saving faith looks like as we respond to the promises of God. Because this is what this family did in their life. And when we say saving faith there, we are speaking about the faith that an individual has to believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation. That Jesus died on the cross for their sins, that he's the Son of God, he rose from the dead again on the third day. That's what we are talking about when we say saving faith. Not faith that says that you have to save yourself. Saving faith is that God is the only one that can save you. And, and this uh, text is, I would say, divided into two halves. The first half is between verses 8 to 12, where we're going to see what saving faith looks like as God is fulfilling his promises. So let's read verse 8. He says there, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So in this section, in the first three verses, the focus really is on Abraham. And Abraham was a man that was said to have been born about 2100 BC. He was the son of a man called Terah. He had two brothers, Nahor and Haran. Haran died early uh, in his life, and his son was Lot, Abraham's nephew. And Abraham's hometown was a town called Ur, which was in Mesopotamia, or modern-day Iraq. And this was a, a city that was a pagan city. It worshipped a moon god. There was lots of bad things happening in that city when Abraham was alive. And one of the things we know very clearly from the scriptures is that when Abraham was less than 75 years old, we don't know exactly when, he received a calling from God. And that calling is shown to us in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. The verses should be up on the screen. It says there, Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed." And it's very important to see that we know from Acts chapter 7 verse 2 that Abraham, or Abram, as he was called then, received this calling and these promises when he was in his hometown of Ur in Mesopotamia. He was called to leave his country, leave his family, get out of his father's house and go to a land that God would show him, that he was going to become a great nation, he was going to be a blessing, and that in him all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And now this is interesting because if you read the end of Genesis 11, you see very clearly there that Terah, Abraham's father, left Ur. 
and began to go to the promised land of Canaan. But the scriptures are very clear that God called Abraham to do that, not his father, Terah. So what happened? Well, I believe what happened was, was when Abraham received this calling, when he was in his hometown, he responded to it partially in faith. He particularly found very difficult this idea that he had to leave his family and his father's house. So what he did was he persuaded his father, Terah, to go, to leave Ur and go to this new uh, nation or this new land that God was going to show them. And his father agreed to it, and they left. All their family went. The journey got difficult, and they ended up in a city called Haran, which is way north of Ur in modern-day Turkey. And Abraham found himself in a place, listen, where he wasn't supposed to be, with a family that he'd been called to leave. And there's a lesson in that for us, that when we respond partially to what God is calling us to do, we often end up in a place we're not meant to be with people we're not meant to be with. So what happened? Well, over the course of time, his father, Terah, died. And then we come to Genesis 12, and it says here, Thou the Lord had said to Abraham. And so I believe what happened was, was that because it says he had said this, and then he goes on to speak this calling again, that God spoke to Abraham again when he was in Haran. He called him again. He said, this is what I'm going to do. And it was at that point when Abraham was 75 years old that he left Haran and he went to Canaan a place that he didn't yet know. It was at that point that it says here in verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going. But listen, the, the thing that I really want you to see here and not miss is the difference between Abraham's faith when he was in his hometown, Ur, and the difference, well, the, his faith in Haran. His faith in his hometown was poor. It was partial. It was weak. He went to Haran. God dealt with him, and his faith grew. It became strong, so much so that he responded fully to the call of God. So what happened to Abraham? Well, it wasn't anything in himself that made this change. Listen, it was the faithfulness of God to his promises. Imagine what you would have felt like if you were Abraham in Haran. You'd been called by God to go to this place. You'd not really listened to God. You're in this city, and you know you're a failure. You know you've not responded to God the way that you should. And then God speaks this calling again to you. He speaks the promises again to you. What is that? That is God saying to Abraham, Abraham, even though you've disobeyed me, even though you've been partially obedient to me, I have not given up on you. Even though you've been faithless, I am still faithful to what I'm calling you to do and what I'm going to do in blessing you. And Abraham would have been like, wow, Lord, you are so loving. You are so gracious. You're so merciful to me that you haven't given up on me even when I've not responded well. And it was that, listen, God's faithfulness, not Abraham's, God's faithfulness that grew Abraham's faith 
to a point where he responded fully to the calling of God on his life. And this is the first thing we see about saving faith as it responds to the promises of God. It will always grow from weakness to strength when we see that God is the one that's faithful all the time, even when we're not. And this is the same for us as New Testament Christians. It speaks about this or alludes to this in Matthew 13, verses 31 to 32 in the parable of the mustard seed. It says there, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now in this parable, Jesus is teaching that the kingdom of God would start small, but then it would grow over time to become a huge, great kingdom. And for that to happen, brothers and sisters, faith has to grow. Faith has to grow in individuals. It has to grow in the church. It has to grow in people getting saved. So this parable is alluding to the reality that there's an expectation that saving faith in the kingdom of God will always grow from weakness to strength. And that can happen in many ways. But one way is the way Abraham learnt it. That when we fail God, when we don't do what we're supposed to do, that God still is faithful. God does not give up on us. He keeps going with us. The promises remain the same. The calling remains the same. And that's what grows our faith. From weakness to strength. That's the first thing we see, that faith always grows. Saving faith always grows. So he then goes on and he says in verse 9, By faith Abraham dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. And so if you read in Genesis what happened, Abraham went to the land of Canaan. He hung around there for a bit, built an altar, worshipped God. There was a famine in the land. He went down to Egypt, deceived Pharaoh. Do you remember that? He went back up to the land of Canaan. He grew in prosperity. And it came to a point where him and Lot couldn't live in the same land anymore because they had too much possessions. Lot chose the plain of Jordan where Sodom and Gomorrah was. And Abraham stayed in the place where he was at that time. And it's at that point in Genesis 13 that God says to Abraham, listen, he says, look to the north, look to the east, the west, and the south. All the land that you see, I'm giving to you as an inheritance forever and ever. And it was at that point that Abraham knew that this was the land that God was going to give him, the land of Canaan. But at that time, the Canaanites were still in the land. So Abraham had been promised the land, but he hadn't been given the land yet. And so that's why he had to dwell in the land of promise as in a foreign country, because it wasn't yet his. And he dwelt there in tents with Isaac and Jacob. He dwelt there like that as a foreigner, 
with his son and with his grandson. And listen, the, the point that the author's trying to make there is he's, he says that he dwelt there for two generations, for 80 years. He lived in the land of promise like this. Now, let me put this into context for you so that you understand how potentially difficult that may have been for Abraham. Imagine that you're going to move house and you find a house. It's great. You put an offer in. The offer gets accepted. The house has been promised to you. But the contract doesn't get signed. And it doesn't get signed for 80 years. You can imagine it after 10 years. Hello, Mr. Estate Agents. Is a contract signed? No. Another 30 years. Still, the contract is not signed. I would get frustrated after a couple of days. <laughs> imagine the frustration that Abraham must have felt in being promised all this land, but he wasn't yet given it. But he didn't leave. He dwelt there for two generations with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him, of the same promise. Why? In verse 10, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. One of the things that Abraham would have learned as well when he was in Haran, when God restated his calling and his promise on Abraham's life, is he would have learned that God, when he makes a promise is God's responsibility to bring about that promise. Think about this for a minute. Abraham was in his home city of Ur. He's probably the only person in the world at that point that God is speaking to. He doesn't obey God. He goes to Haran. God speaks to him again. He realizes how gracious God is. But listen, this is what he would have also learned. He would have also learned that even though he was disobedient and he wasn't completely faithful, God was still going to bring about his promise. His disobedience and his lack of perfect faith was not going to affect that God was going to bring about his promise. And that is, I would say, teaching that when God gives a promise, it's his responsibility, not ours, to bring about that promise. This is the teaching of Scripture, brothers and sisters. Over and over again, when God gives a promise in the scripture, he, scriptures, he says, I will do it. I will do it. It's my responsibility to do this. And when he makes a promise, he has to bring that promise about. Listen, because if he doesn't, it's against his character. Listen to this. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, it says, If we are faithless... He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Do you listen to that? God cannot deny himself. It's an impossibility for God to deny himself. That means that when God says he's going to do something, when he makes a promise, because he cannot deny himself, because he cannot lie, he will bring that promise about. Yes, God wants to use us in bringing about the promises. Yes, if we sin and if we're disobedient to him, then our experience of him in those promises and our usefulness to him, I would say, is diminished, but God still brings it about. Be encouraged in here this morning that if you've entered into the gospel promises in Jesus, 
It's not your responsibility to bring the end point of those promises. It's God's. Because when God makes a promise, it's his responsibility to bring it about. And this is what Abraham would have known. He would have gone to this land and he would have been like, you know what? I don't need to try and force the issue. I don't need to go and battle with the Canaanites now to try and establish this as my land. I don't need to go away and then come back again. I'm just going to wait for the God who's made this promise to bring it about. Because he is the builder, as it says there. He is the maker, as it says there. He is the foundation of this city that I'm going to receive. I've been called from Ur. God's taken me to this new land. He is the one that's going to make it, not me. This is why he waited. And this is the second thing that we see about saving faith as we respond to the promises of God. Saving faith is patient to wait for God to fulfill his promises. Patience. And this should be a great encouragement to us. Because don't you often find that uh, the Christian life is a lot of waiting around? I mean, seriously, if we're being honest, a lot of the Christian life is about waiting. It's about waiting for God to fulfill his promise in sanctifying us to become more like Jesus. It's waiting for him to fulfill his promise in glorifying us to be like Jesus. And because we don't like to wait, because we are often impatient people, we often fall into the temptation of thinking, I've got to do it. I've got to make this promise happen. And I'm not trying to sort of disregard sort of um, being disciplined and seeking the Lord actively. But we can often fall into dead religion, thinking that we have to do something that actually is God's responsibility to do. Saving faith waits patiently for, for God to fulfill his promises. And then in verse 11, he goes on and he says, By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Now, obviously one of the promises that Abraham was given was he was he was given a promise that he was going to be made into a great nation. And that's developed over the few chapters in Genesis, and God says, I'm going to give you descendants, um, you're going to have a son. And, you know, Abraham and Sarah received this promise in the midst of them struggling with barrenness, difficulty to conceive. And also, Abraham probably received this promise in the midst of probably Sarah having gone through the menopause. She had probably come to the end of her menstrual life cycle. And so, in the scriptures, the scriptures are very clear about Abraham's frustration at being given this promise, but yet um, being barren. You see that in Genesis 15 when, when he says, Ah, oh, but God, you've given me a descendant that is not of my own flesh. But one of the things the scriptures is not clear about is Sarah's difficulty 
in that trouble. And I do think it's important for us to understand in a small way the pain that ladies go through that struggle in fertility. Because it goes a long way to show us why Sarah acted in the way she did a little bit later on. Imagine what you, you feel like when you lose your wallet. Or parents, you feel like you've lost a child at an um, event that you go to. Or a young person is given a diagnosis of cancer. You might feel panic. What on earth is going to happen? What does this mean? Why is this happening to me? Well, try and imagine what it feels like to experience that feeling every single month for a good one to two weeks. That feeling of immense loss, immense pain that is very difficult to even put into words. Imagine having to ask yourself questions, does God love me? Why am I a woman? What's my role in life? This is a very small glimpse of the kind of pain that ladies who struggle with infertility go through every month. Not just one or two, every month. And when you know that, you can understand why Sarah, in Genesis chapter 15, tried in her own strength to try and force the issue. To say, maybe I'll get children if Abraham has another wife. And of course, we know the story of Hagar and Ishmael and all that. All that, all that. And then you see also in Genesis 18, when Jesus turns up with two angels and says to Abraham, your wife will give you a son in a year. And Sarah laughs. And she doesn't laugh with joy, she laughs because she's angry, because she's bitter, because she is struggling with the whole idea of how can, on earth can this happen when I am past the age. Extreme pain in a Christian's life can often lead to extreme behavior. And it's not just infertility, it can be other things as well. And I really do feel that we must be aware of that, that there are many believers in our midst, maybe well, in this fellowship, in other fellowships, that go through these kinds of things, and it's very lonely to go through something like that. Very lonely. Just remember those people in your prayers, remember them in your pursuit of fellowship. Sarah had to be brought to this place, brothers and sisters, where in that year after she'd been after she'd laughed at God, that God was going to make her pregnant, that she had to come to the end of herself. She had to come to the end of her own self-effort to try and make herself pregnant. She had to come to the end of her bitterness, her anger, her frustration, her loss. And she had to be like, you know what, Lord? I see that you're working in mine and Abraham's life. I see that you've promised us certain things. And I cannot make this happen in my own strength. I've been angry about this. I've been bitter about this. Sarah had to come to this place where she came to the end of herself. And she had to realize that, you know, the only way this promise was going to come about through her 
was if God supernaturally gave her the strength to conceive. And of course, she judged him who'd promised to be faithful, that God could do it, that even though she couldn't do it, he could. And what was the result? Well, she did. She did get pregnant. She did give birth to Isaac. It happened exactly the way that Jesus said it would. And then the result of that was in verse 12, therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. We see here, brothers and sisters, that the third thing that saving faith looks like as it responds to the promises of God is it receives strength to see the fulfillment of those promises. Listen, God will often, in his divine sovereign will, put you guys in situations in your life where, like Sarah, it's painful, it's difficult, it's hard. And God does that because he wants to teach you the same thing that he taught Sarah, that you have to come to the end of yourself, you have to deal with all those negative things that are in your heart, and come to a point that even though it's still difficult, God can give you the strength to get through. God can give you the strength for the fulfillment of the promises that he's given you in Jesus. And this should be a great encouragement to us. Think about Paul. Do you remember Paul had that thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians and he went to God all the time and said, God, can you take this away from me? And God allowed that so that he could be humble, but also I think it's to teach him this same thing. That with this incredible ministry that God had given Paul, it was only through God's strength in the presence of that thorn that those promises in that ministry would be fulfilled. So saving faith receives the strength for promises to be made and to be received. So that brings us to the end of our first half. Stretch your legs, your arms, go to the toilet if you want to. Um, uh, pray for patience if you're getting annoyed at me already. Um, but we're going to move on. We're going to move on to a different sort of thrust now from verse 13 to verse 22, where what we're going to see is we're going to see how saving faith produces certain radical qualities in our life. Uh, we're going to see how it produces radical change, radical hope, and a radical seeking after the glory of God. And when I say radical, I mean different to normal. John spoke last week that really, if we're being honest, everyone in the world has some kind of faith in something. But the difference between saving faith and the faith of the world, whatever God it is, whether it's money, sex, another religion, that faith in the world cannot produce these things that we're going to talk about now. Only saving faith in Jesus Christ can bring these radical realities to our life. So he starts off in verse 13 and he says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now when he says these all there, he's speaking of Abraham and Sarah, and he basically says that they died, or their life came to an end, and when they died, they were still faithful, they still believed. 
And it says there that when they died, they had not received the promises. And that means that they had not received what the promises that they were given were pointing to. They didn't see Jesus alive. They didn't see God incarnated. They didn't see him live his perfect life. They didn't see him die on the cross and rise again. That's what it means when it says they hadn't received the promises. But it says that they saw them from afar off. And that means that Abraham and Sarah, in being given the promises that God gave them, they knew about the reality of sin. They knew about the reality that God wanted to interact in the world of sin and save human beings. And that that was going to be through one of their descendants in some way. And so they, they believed the promises. They saw them from afar off. They were assured of them, as it says there, which means absolutely uh, convinced of it. They embraced them wholeheartedly. And it says that they confessed also that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. I don't know about you, but one of the things you notice when you, when you realize what sin is and you realize that God wants to save human beings is you realize that you're in the minority. You realize that most people out there in Norwich, probably at least 90% of people in Norwich, don't believe in sin. They don't believe that God wants to interact in the world to save people. We're in the minority. We are, as it says here, strangers in this world. It feels like that we, we don't really belong here. This is not where we're meant to be. We are pilgrims on the earth. Uh, this is what Abraham and Sarah saw. They knew that they were in the minority. They knew that they were strangers. They knew that they were pilgrims. And as it says there in verse 14, for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. You know, when you know you're in the minority, as I said, you, you kind of get this sense that you don't belong here, that you're not really meant to be here, that you belong to someone else. And of course, we belong to God because we're saved in Jesus Christ. Abraham and Sarah believed in God. They were saved by grace. And they were looking for a place where they were meant to be. They were looking by faith for a homeland, as it says there. They were looking, as it says in verse 16, for something that was better. They were looking for a heavenly country where sin was not present, where God was present, where all the bad things had been washed away. And what we see in this sort of exposition here of this scripture is that Abraham and Sarah, through believing and having saving faith, they had seen radical change in their life. They'd come from a place of unbelief. They were living in a pagan city, living in sin. And by believing in God, they came to a place where they agreed with God about sin. They agreed with God about his salvation plan. And they agreed with God about his plans for the future. They'd seen radical change. And you see, the, the faith of the world cannot produce this radical change. <laughs> because only God can change us. The things of this world cannot change us, brothers and sisters. The things that you watch on TV can't change you. The things that you watch on the internet, that you read from the world, cannot change you. They might influence you, but they can't change your heart. The only person that can change your heart is God himself. And this is a wonderful truth about being a Christian. <laughs> 
that as a Christian and having saving faith, we are changed from the inside out. The God comes into our hearts via the Holy Spirit. He gives us the new birth. He regenerates us. He begins to work in our heart to make us more like Christ. What an amazing thing. And this has to be present in your life if you claim to be a Christian. You have to live in this radical change. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. It says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And the word for holiness there is sanctification. It's this idea that when we become Christians, we're changed to be more like Jesus. If that change is not happening in you, then as it says here, you're not going to see the Lord. Saving faith brings radical change, brothers and sisters. It's a wonderful truth that we should rejoice in. I mean, seriously, do you know how blessed you are that you have God in you? Do you know how incredibly mind-boggling that is? That most of the world do not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. But you do. (laughs) He is working in every scenario in your life to make you like Jesus. There is no better truth than that, other than A, being saved, and B, we're going to be in glory one day. Incredible. He goes on in verse 15, and he says, And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they'd come out, they would have had opportunity to return. Now, what he's doing here is he's bringing up a very specific application to the uh, people that he was writing to. He's saying very simply, look, if Abraham and Sarah meditated in their mind about the place that they'd come from, Ur, in Mesopotamia, they would have had ample opportunity to go back to their homeland in their life. That's the statement he's making in verse 15. But the evidence is that A, they died in faith, And B, if you look at the scriptures, they never went back to their homeland. They never went back to the place that they had come from. Now, I could get into this in lots of detail and speak about how this points towards the perseverance of the saints and all that kind of stuff, but that would be another sermon. But the simple reality of what he's trying to say here is, look, guys, Sarah, Abraham, this couple that you revere so much they came from a place they went to the place that God called them to and they never went back to their old life you've been saved in Jesus Christ and you're now going to go back to the Old Testament law how preposterous is that that you're even considering that knowing that Abraham and Sarah didn't do it so don't go back to the Old Testament law that's what he's doing in bringing up this example And he says very clearly in verse 16, if you do that, if you go back to the law and put yourself under its bondage, under religion, you're not pleasing to God. Because he says there, look, in verse 16 of Abraham and Sarah, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. God is pleased, listen, when saving faith radically changes you. He's not pleased when having been changed, you then go back to your old life whether it's going back to the law or going back to sin, he's not pleased with that. He's only pleased with a faith that radically changes and stays in the place that he has called that person to. Because that person who stays in that place has their eyes fixed on Jesus. 
has their eyes fixed on the city that's being prepared for us even now in heaven that will come down with the new creation. Hallelujah. This is what he's saying. Listen, I know how tempting religion is. I really do. If there's one temptation that I have that sort of drags me away from Jesus, it can be religion. This idea that I've got to try and add something on to just believing in Jesus to be saved. But I have to really get into my mind that God is not pleased with that. And I want you to have in your hearts today, fixed in your hearts, that God is not pleased when you add things on to Jesus. Don't do it. You're only going to get yourself into bondage. So he goes on in verse 17 to say, he says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Now this in this section between verses 17 uh, to 17, 18, and 19, we see the second radical thing that comes to our life when we have saving faith, and that is radical hope and expectation. He says there, by faith Abraham when he was tested. And what he's referring to is in Genesis chapter 22 when God called Abraham to offer Isaac on the altar as a sacrifice. And the first thing I want to say is that when you look at that word tested there, it's a word in the Greek that means that in this situation, the person that's being tested is going to be proved to be genuine, proved to be uh, on God's terms or God's side. When we think about a test in our Western culture, we think of pass or fail. Pass or fail. It's one or the other. But in this context, when it's used biblically, this word, it means this situation is going to prove Abraham to be genuine. And of course, there in Genesis 22, Abraham, if you read it and remember it, what did he do? He was asked or he's called by God to go up to Mount Moriah to go and sacrifice Isaac. He took Isaac, he took two male servants, they traveled to the mountain. When they got to the mountain, Abraham and Isaac left the two male servants and said, we're going up on the mountain to worship. They go up on the mountain, Isaac's getting nervous. He's saying, you know, where's the sacrificial lamb, Dad? And Abraham says, well, God will provide the sacrificial lamb. And so they get up to the place, Abraham builds an altar, and then he binds Isaac up, and he's about to lift his knife up to slay his son. This is Abraham, listen, as it says in verse 17, who'd received the promise that he was going to have a son. This was Abraham, as it says in verse 18, who received a word from God that said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, which means something very important. It means that Isaac is not the person who's going to bless the whole world. It's going to be someone, one of Isaac's descendants, that's going to be the blessing to the whole world. Think about that. He had these two promises given to him, but here he is, just about to slay his son, the only son that he'd been promised, the son in whom the blessing is going to come to the whole world. I mean, can you get your head around that? 
That is some serious faith, man. To be up there on the altar, whoa. It shows that Abraham had confidence in God. And that's expressed in verse 19 where it says that he did this concluding that God was able to raise him up, Isaac, even from the dead. Now, how on earth did Abraham get to this place? How did he get to this place where he's been given these promises and he's just about to sacrifice the son who he has been promised? Well, I would say that it's by exercising faith in a hopeless situation. Exercising faith in a hopeless situation. Think about this again. Abraham and Sarah were barren. God says to Abraham, you're going to have a son. Okay, God, you've just promised that I'm going to have a son, but I'm in this hopeless situation. I'm barren, but I still believe you. He exercised faith in a hopeless situation, and he did that over and over and over and over again for 25 years. At least 25 years he did that. It speaks about this in Romans 4, verse 18, where it says, speaking of Abraham, who, contrary to hope, hopeless situation, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Abraham, for all that time, he was in a hopeless situation. He was barren, but he still grew in faith. His expectation and hope in God that God was going to fulfill that promise got larger and larger and larger to the point where when he was 100 years old, Sarah gave birth to Isaac. And so he finds himself in this situation, another hopeless situation. Here's the son that's been promised. God, you said to me, I've got to kill my son now. That seems like a pretty hopeless situation. But he's like, you know what? The Lord's got this. I've been doing this for 25 years. I've been in a hopeless situation for 25 years, exercising faith, and even if Isaac dies, he will rise up from the dead because God will fulfill his promise. He had this radical expectation and hope in God. And remember in Genesis 22, God says to Abraham, don't do it. Don't lay a hand on your son. I now have proved that your faith is real and is genuine and it will be read about for generations to come. Receive your son back. And as it says there, it was in a figurative sense, which means that that sort of sacrifice of the son and the receiving back of the son is a picture of Jesus, the son, being given on the cross but then being received back to the father in his ascension. That's what it's pointing to. Now, listen, brothers and sisters, this is the radical news and the good news. You all in here who believe in Jesus Christ are called to grow in that radical expectation and hope in God. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What is that living hope? It is a hope that God is going to fulfill every single promise that he has made us in the gospel, that we are justified in Jesus, which he's already done, 
that we're going to be sanctified in Jesus fully, which he's doing in our lives right now. That we're going to be glorified in Jesus Christ, which will happen when Jesus comes back a second time. When Jesus physically comes back to this earth as the conquering king, all of the promises of the gospel will be fulfilled in full. That is why the scriptures say that the second coming is our blessed hope. It's our expectation that we are going to have that fulfillment when he comes back. That's what God wants to do. And what he will do, listen, is he will put us sometimes in situations that appear hopeless in our life as believers. Why? Because he wants to exercise faith in those situations. That when you exercise faith in hopeless situations in your life as a believer, your faith and expectation and hope in God will grow to such an incredible place that you will be able to do things like Abraham did. You'll be able to step out into hopeless situations for God and radical things will happen. So listen, if you're in a hopeless situation this morning as a believer in Jesus Christ, rejoice. Seriously, rejoice because God wants you to go to him and say, Lord, I am in a hopeless situation. (laughs) I can see no way that the gospel promises are being fulfilled in me or any time in the future. But you, you want me to come to you and say, Lord, help me. Give me faith. Help me to grow in this kind of expectation and hope that Abraham had so that I can do the same things that he did. The thing is, brothers and sisters, the faith of the world cannot produce this hope. Do you know why? Because the gods of this world deceive us. They lie to us. Money does that. Sex does that. All the gods of all the other religions do that as well. They deceive, they lie, they're idols. They cannot produce a hopeful expectation in you. Do you know why Jesus can produce that hopeful expectation in you? Because the promises he's made are certain. Again, I go back to the same thing I said earlier. God can't lie. Believe that. God cannot lie. If he says that you're saved in Jesus Christ, you're going to be sanctified in him, you're going to be glorified in him, that is what is going to happen. He can't lie. He can't deny himself. The promises we have are absolutely certain. That's why you can have that hopeful expectation in him. Now, lastly, the last three verses on this marathon we've been through. Verses 20, 21, and 22. I'm just going to read those verses all together because they all fit together as one, really. It says, By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the tops of his, top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Now, I'm not going to go through what happened exactly in every one of these situations, but what I want to draw your attention to is that in all of these situations, each one is very unusual. In verse 20, when Isaac blesses his sons, he blesses Jacob first rather than Esau. When Jacob blesses Joseph's son, he blesses the younger grandson first before the older grandson. 
And in those two scenarios, they are unusual because normally the firstborn son or the firstborn grandson would be blessed first. And then in verse 22, when Joseph, when he's dying, makes mention of the departure of the, children, of the children of Israel, giving instructions concerning his bones, he's basically saying that he doesn't want to be buried in Egypt. And that's a big deal, because in Egypt, in that time, culturally, the burial of leaders was very significant. That's why you have those massive pyramids in Egypt, and you have the, the tombs of Tutankhamun and all that kind of stuff. So for him to say, I don't want to be buried in Egypt, that's very unusual because he was the prime minister of Egypt for a very long period of time. But also, listen, look, the other thing I want you to see is that in the, these three situations, blessing is coming from God to the weaker, not to the stronger. Blessings coming from God to the weaker. The younger son, the younger grandson, and Joseph's dying. He's weak physically. He's going to be in the, um, in the grave, weak in the flesh. And listen, the other thing I want you to notice is that these three men, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, are seeking after these scenarios. They're seeking after the blessing of God coming in unusual circumstances to the weaker person. Why are they doing that? Well, I think it's because they learned that this is how God works. Isaac would have learned that through the example of his parents. Blessing came to the weak. Jacob would have learned that through his experience of being blessed by his father. Because when he was blessed, he was the weaker one because he was younger, but he also sinned as well. Because remember, he deceived his father, but yet he was still blessed. And then you see Joseph as well. Joseph would have learned this principle because remember, his brothers had him sold into slavery, but then God used that to bring him to be blessed, to be the one that would, in a sense, rule the nation of Egypt. These three men learnt that God often, the way he works, is he will bring blessing in unusual circumstances to weak people. And he does that, listen, because he wants himself to be glorified. He wants himself to be seen as most valuable, as most worthy, because in weak circumstances, unusual circumstances, the flesh, our own strength, can have no glory. It's only God that gets the glory in these circumstances. And this is the way God was working in the Old Testament. And it's also the way he works in the New Testament. And we see that very clearly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 1 Verses 26 to 31. It says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Now these verses teach us that God doesn't choose uh, specific people because of maybe the way they look, 
or because of the clothes that they wear or the job that they have or how much money they have. But he is teaching here that God often brings the gospel in situations where someone's heart is in real weakness, where someone's heart is, as it says here, not mighty, they're not really wise, they're the foolish thing, they're the things that are not. And he does that, listen, because in doing that, in bringing the blessing of the gospel in those weak situations, he is glorified. Let me give you an example. Imagine a prostitute in Norwich comes into this service one day, is full of tears, is weak, is humble before the Lord, and God brings the gospel to that person. People would look at her who knew her out in the world and be like, wow, what has happened to you? How comes you've changed so much? And God is glorified. Because in these weak scenarios, the flesh has no, um, has no advantage. It can't glorify itself. God is glorified. God glorifies himself in the gospel by bringing the blessing of it to weak people, those who are weak in the spirit, those who know how much they need salvation, those who are convicted of sin, who have no pride in coming to the Lord. They say, Lord, you know what? I can't do anything. I'm a wretched sinner. I need you to save me. Now, What I want to bring out in this is that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, one of God's priorities is that he be glorified. That people see the glory of God. That people see how valuable and how worth God is. That's his priority, both in the Old Testament and the New. Why? Because when people see the glory of God, when they see him for who he is, everything else falls at the wayside. Everything else is nothing compared to the glory of God. Human beings are in the right place when they see God's glory. And he wants human beings to see that. That's why he worked in this way in the Old Testament. That's why he works this way in the gospel. He wants us to see his glory. He wants us to seek after that. That's why these men in the Old Testament are seeking through prayer, through blessing, through making decisions about their funeral, you could say, to see God glorified. And that's what he calls every single one of you to do in your life. And that's what I expect to happen with saving faith. Saving faith seeks after the glorification of God. In the New Testament, we're told to do all things for the glory of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, we're told that we need less of us and more of him. We're told to deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow Jesus. Why? Because when we do that, God is more likely to be glorified. And when God is more likely to be glorified, sinners come to repentance. They believe in Jesus Christ and they're saved. And we grow and are prepared to be with him forever. So, brothers and sisters, this brings us to the end of this section. And I want to just finish by saying that I don't have any technique for you to develop these things of saving faith in your life. I could share with you about how it's worked maybe in my life, but really, there is no technique. 
What I do want to say to you is that in Galatians, it says that the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. So if you're born again in here this morning, as the Spirit works in your life, I believe by Scripture that you will grow in faith and you will grow in these qualities that we've talked about this morning. But let me ask you this question. Do you ask the Spirit to grow you in faith? Or do you try in your own self-effort to grow in faith? Listen, the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. You must, I would encourage you to spend each day asking the Lord in His grace to grow you in faith, to help you to be patient, to help you to receive the strength to the fulfillment of His promises, to radically change, to have this radical expectation and hope and to radically seek after the glory of God. And for those of you in here who don't know the Lord, who don't know Jesus, I would just say this to you, that you may think that you don't have faith because you don't believe in a religious thing. But faith is about putting your trust and your confidence in something. It's about entrusting yourself to that thing for life. As I said, whether it's career, whether it's money, whether it's family, whether it's whatever, you do believe in something. It's just that you haven't believed in Jesus yet. And I would say if you have the faith of the world, it's never going to do any good for you. You might feel some kind of emotional or some sort of uh, pleasure in it, but that's fleeting. It goes away. What Jesus brings is a lasting, eternal relationship of love, of glory, <laughs> of wonderful uh, companionship, a new family. That's what I call you to respond to today. Reject the faith of the world. It is futile. It will never replace anything that Jesus can give you.